Welcome. So you should have received session seven notes on the way in. Thanks, guys, for handing those out. This is session seven. And we have, after today, we have three more for this class. So the next two Sundays, but then three Sundays from today, three weeks from today, is Easter. We don't have second hour on Easter. So worship service for Easter at 1030 on that day, and that'll be it for, for Easter. And then on the 16th, the following week, we have one final week of this class. On the 23rd, April 23rd, we will have several classes going on again. One of those is Newcomer's Orientation. If you have never taken the Newcomer's Orientation, I encourage you to take that. It is, as the name suggests, for newcomers. It give, we give you a booklet of material. We tell you about the church, our philosophy, what we believe, why we do things the way we do. It's a small setting, so you can ask any questions you might have. Uh, so you don't need to register for that. You just need to show up. That'll be second hour starting April 23rd. It goes for four weeks in a row. I lead that class. While that's going on, Pastor Larry leads our Membership 101 class for four weeks. That's for people who have recently joined the church. And if you're in that category, he has your name on a list. He'll send you an email to remind you about that. And then in the auditorium, we'll have another class. The Crossroads Group, 20-somethings will be meeting. And then everybody who doesn't fit in those three will be in the, the auditorium for those, those four weeks. All right, that's what's coming up. Today is session seven, top of page 30, you see, in our Truth for Life series. The first two pages of the material you have here, the first two of the four, are taken from a blog and a book by Paul Tripp. I've mentioned that to you uh, for several weeks, and it's footnoted down at the bottom. The uh, blog title, uh, the Doctrine of the Image of God and the Doctrine of Sin at his website, but then also he has a book that goes through some of this called Do You, Do you Believe? And the premise of that book, Do You Believe, is that if you do believe, it should make a, a practical difference. Like if you do believe that God is watching everything you do, it should make a difference if we, if we believe. That's what uh, Paul Tripp is, is saying, and of course he is, he's right. And we have then in this series looked at uh, doctrines like creation, holiness, glory, sovereignty, providence. Today you see at the top of page 30 that we're going to look at a couple of fancy words, anthropology and hamartiology. So what are those? Uh, anthropology is the fancy term for the study of humanity, and hamartiology is the study of sin, the doctrine of sin. So you have the, the doctrines of humanity and sin, and that's why I subtitle it Jekyll and, and Hyde. You remember that Dr. Jekyll is the respectable doctor, you know, the good guy from all appearances from the outside. He's, he's just fine, but there's this other side to him. Uh, Mr. Hyde, but they are actually the same, they're the same person. And that is true, as we're going to see, of, of humanity, that there is both this beauty of who humanity is, but there's also the, the ugliness and the potential for more ugliness in, in the sin that dominates our hearts outside of Christ. So you, you see those two put together, anthropology, hamartiology, humanity, and sin, Jekyll and, and Hyde. 
And these are so closely related because humanity is sinful that sometimes people don't think about the fact that you can, and we have had in history, we have had times where you can have humanity but not sin. So Adam was, of course, from moment one, fully human, but he was not sinful. He was not sinful until he sinned. So you had, unfortunately, for a very brief time, a separation of these two, humanity and, and sin, in the, in the life of the second Adam, as the Bible calls him, Jesus. Jesus, fully human, but without sin. And in the future, thanks be to God, when we're in heaven, when we're in glory, when we are glorified, then we will still be fully human, but also without sin. So it's, it's possible and has in fact happened in the first Adam and the, the second Adam that you have humanity, fully human, but without, but without sin. We will remain fully human in the future. Thankfully, our sin will be taken, taken away fully, even out of the presence of, of sin and complete uh, victory over power of sin as well in, in the future. So here's how, here's how it is. Uh, if you were to chart out and you were to put on, and if I loved you, I would have charted this out for you, put it in your notes. But if you were to just put on the left side, you know, these four categories, uh, if you were to put the first category as pre-fall, you know, pre, prior to the fall, pre-fall, and then a second category would be post-fall, the after the fall into after sin has entered the human race, the fall. So pre-fall, post-fall. Uh, and then you've got post-conversion uh, as a third category. You become a Christian, you're converted. And then you've got a final, final category, post-resurrection or post-glorification. So you got pre-fall, post-fall, post-conversion, post-glorification. Those four things. And in each of those four categories, here's, here's the way it is. Pre-fall, humanity, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were able to sin, clearly, because they did, but they were able not to sin. Their condition was able to sin, able not to sin. Pre-fall. But then after they sin, then all humanity comes into the world in a different, it's no longer able to sin, able not to sin. Here's what it is. After the fall. Not able not to sin. Wow. That's all we can do is sin. After the fall, but prior to that third category, post-conversion, then you're just, you're not able not to sin. Now, some of you are looking at me like, wow, that's, that's really bad. I don't think I realized it was that bad. No, it's that bad. Not able not to sin. And you think about things that the Bible says. 
like Isaiah 64 and verse 6, Isaiah 64 and verse 6, that from the perspective of a completely pure, holy God, all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Quoting the Old Testament, quoting the first part of your Bible in Romans chapter 3, which Paul does, I think, it's 14 or 18 times. In Romans 3, he, he quotes or alludes to passages in the first part of the Bible to show the sinfulness of humanity. And he summarizes, he says, there is no, no one good, not even one. There's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks God. I mean, you go through that litany of things and it's just depressing. Okay. But that's humanity after the fall. All humanity, not able not to sin. Now, later in our lesson today, and I think we'll get to the whole lesson, but if not, we'll continue next week. But later, I will talk about how a Dr. Jekyll can look so Dr. Jekyllish. <laughs> I mean, if you're just not able not to sin, I mean, if we're really that bad, then how can people actually look good? I mean, people, you know, lots of people that you know that are not Christians still look like good people. And, you know, they're your neighbors, and they don't necessarily steal your stuff. They might feed your dog when you're gone. You know, I mean, you enjoy their company, right? All kinds of things. So how does doctor, you know, how do all these sinful people who are not able not to sin still got the Dr. Jekyll thing uh, working for them? So that's that second category. But then after salvation, post-conversion, the situation is that we are able to sin. So you're a Christian, you're converted, but you're, you can still sin and do, as do I. But you're able not to sin. You're back to what we were to be in the first category. But, you know, you're still wanting something different, right? You're wanting a permanent state where sin is completely gone. It's, it's nature, it's power, it's presence is completely removed from you. That's what we're looking forward to. So then you have post-glorification, heaven, the eternal state, you know. And that is, here's your, you just got one state there, and that is not able to sin. I'm looking forward to that one not able to sin. So that second category of post-fall, and if you don't get to the third category, post-conversion, then post-fall is just all unbelievers. Everybody outside of Christ is just post-fall, and they are not able not to sin. But then that third category is post-conversion, that's, that's Christians. Able to sin, able not, able not to sin. And I'll talk about how that second category of unbelievers, even though the truth of the matter is they're not able not to sin, they still can look better than, than that. I'll talk about that later. So humanity and sin are so closely related, we sin, it's easy for us to think of them as the same thing. So... Uh, our revered and beloved 
elder doctor William Combs. Uh, I've known him for decades now. I took classes from him. We've had lunch together on Thursday, solving all the world's problems for a few, de- <laughs> few decades now with some other guys from the seminary. We create more problems, try to solve them the following week. But in all those years, I've known him. Any problem we bring up, he's got one line that's the solution to it. He says, quote, regularly he says this. This is the truth. It all comes back to depravity. Depravity, sinfulness. It all comes back to depravity. So that's how negative that dude is. I mean, I go to the lunch to just cheer things up, okay, a little bit. And I'm trying to say something, you know, helpful. And he goes, you know, it all just comes back to depravity. So he's sort of the glum in Gulliver's Travels. We're doomed. We'll never make it. You guys remember him? It all comes, it all comes back to depravity. But Dr. Combs, then, is our resident expert on depravity. <laughs> I'll just leave that there. So what we want to see in this lesson, given that we are human on the, on the one hand, sinful on the other, and those are not necessarily the same thing, and in fact, there have been times in history when they have not been, and there will be a time in the future when they will not be. So we want to see them both as what they are in themselves. We want to see what humanity is apart from sin. What was humanity made to be? So in this lesson, we want to see what we were made to be without sin. We want to see, secondly, what we become because of sin. And then thirdly, what all of that means practically for us. Okay? So page 30. The Dr. Jekyll in all of us. That's the good guy. I'm created in God's likeness. That means I'm more like God than I'm like the rest of creation. There's a moment early in the biblical narrative, the narrative of creation, where God picks up dust and breathes humanity into humanity. And Adam becomes a living being. And God defines the nature of this being with nine words, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. In terms of human identity, it is impossible to get more earth-shaking, more important definitional words than those. God is saying, I've created glory after glory after glory after glory in this physical world, but this creation is unique and different because I've stamped my likeness on His being. In that moment, God invested human beings with the ultimate in dignity and value. Psalm 8 says God created us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. And the question in Psalm 8 is, if you look at the grandeur of creation, you would think, what is little man? Why would you care about him? So if you look at the context of Psalm 8, the psalmist is celebrating the works of God's hands. But then what is man? that you are mindful of Him? And the answer is, not so fast. This one that may look puny and small is actually the one crowned with glory and honor. This one's made in my image. So, that's that's what the Bible teaches about us as we were made to be. Humanity as humanity was made to be in the image of God. Now, there's the post-fall thing that I talked about, phase. Not able not to sin. 
So does that mean that the image of God is eradicated then? To put it another way, is every human being in the world today and everyone that has ever been made in the image of God? And the answer to that biblically is yes. Despite the fact that we have the malady of sin that has affected the way we image God, we still have it. We know we have it because the first sin occurs, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve disobey God. And it becomes so bad, does the human race, as a result of sin, that God says, I'm going to destroy the world. In fact, in Gen- by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, at least 1,500 years, at least 1,500 years after Adam and Eve are created, and, and maybe thousands of years more than that. But over that time, you get to about 2,500 B.C., and you've got a guy named Noah and the flood. And God destroys the world with a, a flood, saves only eight people, Noah, his wife, three sons, and their, their wives. And God says in Genesis chapter 6 that the thoughts and intents of humanity's heart were only evil continually. That's what it says. So that's how bad, how bad it got. And then you know the story in Genesis 6, 7, 8 of the, the flood. God gives the covenant to, to Noah that I'm going to restore the earth and you're going to replenish the earth through your seed like the first Adam did. You're going to do that now. You're going to be fruitful and multiply. All of that. I'm not going to destroy the world again by, by water. But God says you're going to have to govern your affairs, including with civil government, that's going to keep people in line. Because sinful people have to be kept in line. If you, if you live in a world of sinful people where you don't have a proper authority, That's an unlivable world. You don't want that. And and let let me just say, I'm not not looking to wax political here, but all this stuff has ramifications for all areas of our lives. And there is this move among Christian, conservative Christian people to... And I, I never thought I would live long enough to see this. Conservative Christian people who denigrate the law enforcement You know, law enforcement, are, they're the bad people. Oh, oh, let me put another name on it, like the FBI. Because they're part of law enforcement, too. Did you know that? Did you know the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, is also part of law enforcement? And it's just, you know, as I was growing up in my conservative world, you know, it was conservatives who were, you know, believed in the need for a military because we live in a fallen world and we got enemies. And there's bad stuff going on out there, so we need police and we need FBI and we need all of that stuff. For what it's worth, because of this, not because of some political partisan thing, because of these truths, this is the reason that I'm thankful we have that stuff. And I would just encourage you to, to think about a world where you don't. All right, now... Now I'm all riled up. (laughs) 
Well, one, you know, okay, it's one thing to get fired, you know. You know, people are getting more than fired, they're getting fired at, okay? And it's going to get worse if we keep this nonsense up. It's going to get worse. So uh, we need to think in terms of, hey, what is humanity? And does human is, is restraint upon people overall, upon their sinful urges, is that overall a good thing? And the answer to that is yes. God gives in Genesis chapter 9, hey, you're going to have to restrain. I'm giving you civil government to do this. And you're going to need to keep one another in line, including if someone takes another person's life, they forfeit their life. Capital punishment. Genesis chapter 9. But he says there, here's why a person who takes the life of a human being is going to have their life taken, because they have destroyed the image of God. So here you have post-fall, at least 1,500 years after the fall, maybe thousands of years more, in a situation where the thoughts and the intents of men's hearts were only evil continually, God said, but he still says, pronounces upon humanity, they're still made in the image of God. So there has never been a human being, and there will never be a human being not made in the image of God. All right, so if that is true, is there any human being who is irredeemable? And we, you know, several of you shook your head no, and you're, you're right. But do you believe? Do we believe? You know, in our hostile environment today, with the enemies that we've made and the people that we're really angry at, it's easy to forget that they're all still redeemable. And we're in the redeeming business. So we behave in ways that are constructive toward the gospel. So there's nobody irredeemable. Everybody's made in the image of God. And that has effects like Paul Tripp goes through here, the middle of page 30. I must look at every human being, no matter what they believe, no matter what they're doing, no matter how much I would otherwise be disgusted, no matter how wrong they are, how malevolent they must be, I must look at them and I must see the likeness of God himself. And I must always treat that being with love and honor and dignity. That's a Okay, let's just be honest. That's a challenge, isn't it? That's the heart of justice. That's the heart of racial equality. That's the heart of treating women with honor and not as objects. It's why I don't scream and yell at my children and treat them like little slaves to make my life easier. It's why I don't treat my neighbor with irritation because he's different than me. It's why government should never be comprised of corrupt politicians living for human power. I should treat with dignity those whose culture is marvelously different than mine and whose language is different than mine and, whose dre and who dress in ways that I find weird and eat things that I would never eat because dignity is stamped on them. All right, let me stop there. You all hear that, how quiet it is? Because that's a challenge. It's a challenge. Let's be honest. And it's more of a challenge today because some of us are old enough 
to remember living in a time where I didn't have any of that. I didn't have weird people around me. They were like me. Now I've got weird people around me. And I got people from other countries coming. What, whatever happened to the good old days when we sent missionaries to those people? <laughs> now they got the nerve to come over here and live next to me, and I don't have to spend any money to send somebody to the other side of the world to give them the gospel. How weird is that? No, really, I mean, we could look at it that way. Instead of us having to go to the world, the world's coming to us. That's looking at it from a gospel perspective. And I'm not dismissing all the problems that go with you know, illegal immigration and all that. I'm not. I know there are problems with that. And I'm not going to solve all of those for us here. But I'm just saying we, we've got to start with the perspective that God gives us about people. So some of us grew up when it was like, everybody was like us. And not everybody's not like us now. Quite the contrary. And sin, the hamartiology part, the Mr. Hyde part, is really showing up in a big way. <laughs> okay? So that affects the world we live in, and we have to react to that. And we don't like it, and it's uncomfortable. So we've got challenges in the years ahead, to be sure. So Tripp says at the bottom of page 30, I'm a city boy. I walk the streets, and people say to me, don't you miss the glory of God in creation? Meaning, you know, wouldn't it be better if you were out in, out in the countryside so you could see God's creation a bit? And he says, what are you talking about? I see the likeness of God walking toward me on the street. Me walking in Philadelphia is a time of worship for me because I'm seeing God's likeness again and again and again and again. I remember his existence and I remember to treat all these people with dignity. I should not just walk by the homeless person. I should love them and I should have a heart full of sympathy because that dignity is damaged, but the dignity is still there. And this doctrine changes the whole ballgame of human relationships and human interaction and all the institutions that deal with human beings because God made the choice that He would place the dignity of His likeness on human beings. We must always remember that and play that out in our minds then. What does that mean in terms of how I view other people people who are quite different from, from me. Quite different, but we also have this in common at the core of our humanity, made in the image of God, made to reflect God back to God. It's then, because of sin, we saw from Genesis 9 that the image is not obliterated, but it has been marred. And so we do not, as sinful beings, reflect the character of God back to God clearly as we were made to do. That has to be restored. How is it restored? Through the gospel, through conversion. So that's the Dr. Jekyll in all of us. That's the good guy, made in the image of God. But then there is the Mr. Hyde in all of us. Not too long after creation, Adam and Eve step outside of God's boundaries, they, and sin enters the world. When David sinned against Bathsheba in an act of selfishness and adultery, in his confession, he says something really important. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, but then he goes nine months prior to birth and says, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
So at conception, I, David, received my nature, my sin nature from my parents. So when does somebody become sinful? Second one. When the egg, uh, when the sperm fertilizes the egg, at conception, you now have a sinful being in miniature that is now going to, to sprout and grow. Cute as that little thing is that comes out of the womb, cute as baby Kit is, Kit is eight months old as of this past week, eight months, eight months worth of just the cutest thing. Do you guys want to see pictures? <laughs> But that's true for Kit. And it's true for Lainey. It's true for Annie. And the reason it's true for Kit is because it's true of Lainey and Clay. And the reason it's true of Lainey and Clay is because of their parents, especially Clay's parents. John's, <laughs> John's, John's here. <laughs> but, and it goes, and, and why? Why is that true of Kim and me and John and Teresa? You go back, you go back to Adam and Eve. So we all inherit the same sin nature at conception. All of us do. What's really important to understand about this doctrine are three things. First, sin then is not just a matter of behavior, it's a matter of my nature. It's not just that I do bad things, I have evil inside of me, I am a sinner. And so you'll never solve this problem by behavioral reformation. Because I could attempt to change some of my behavior, but I can't change the condition of my heart. Amen. That's right. So right away, I know that I need rescue. I need a Savior. Now, this is where I was joking earlier. You know, Dr. Combs says it comes, all comes back to depravity. I mean, th this is where if you don't get depravity right, you won't get salvation right. If you don't get the problem diagnosed correctly. You won't get the solution, the proper solution. So Christ is the solution and the only solution because the problem is an inside job. It is our nature and we can't change our own nature. The thing that I need to be rescued from most in this life is me because I'm the greatest problem. If you happen to read blogs, the church has one, and my blog two days ago was titled The Enemy Within. And it talks about this stuff. So it's at our website. Take a look. And if you can't sleep, they go back to March of 2020. So you can just... And they're out there weekly, okay? But the thing I need most to be rescued from is me because I'm my greatest problem. So that's the first thing. Sin is not just a behavior. It's a nature that causes me to do wrong. But the second thing is, the commands that I'm disobeying are not just an abstract set of laws. Rather, my intention is to rebel against the authority of a person. Sin is relational. Sin is committed against God. Every sin is first against God. It may involve other people, but it's first against God. 
Some sins that we commit are just sins of, are sins of the way we think. And they don't involve anybody else necessarily. But even that's a sin against God. He made us in His image to reflect Him in the way we think and talk and act. And that's why then David in Psalm 51, where he's confessing about his sin with Bathsheba, and he said there that in sin my mother conceived me, he also says this, notice, against you, you only have I sinned. Now you think about all the people David sinned against. And he's got the audacity to say, I sinned against you only, God. I mean, Bathsheba was sinned against. I mean, you talk about the Me Too movement. I mean, here's the guy in ultimate human power. And he takes this woman. And I don't, and I don't know, what all, I don't know uh, the interaction. The Bible doesn't tell us all the interaction between David and Bathsheba. And so lots of people have said, well, you know, she shouldn't have been bathing on the roof of her house. Well, that's where they bathed, okay? No, it's David who shouldn't have been hanging out and on purpose apparently hanging out because the text tells us, the Bible tells us that he's home when kings are out, were out to battle, when he's supposed to be somewhere else. That's what it's telling you. He purposely stayed home. So David's up to no good, that's for sure. And it's not going to do us any good, and yet, you know, I've heard sermons and stuff talking about Bathsheba, you know, and what a Jezebel Bathsheba must have been, or, or, what, a, or what a Bathsheba Jezebel must have been. <laughs> I mean, we try to blame, we try to blame the, the object, the person, of someone's sin, but the Bible's not focused on Bathsheba. The Bible's focused on David. And, and David does this. But David rightly, when he confesses, he sees that this is relational. Yes, relational on a horizontal level. Bathsheba, he also happens to be the king of a nation that's a theocracy. So he's supposed to represent God in front of the people. He's sinned against the whole nation. Not to mention Uriah, who he sends out to be killed. And yet he says, against you and you only. He sees how this is first vertical, always. And so now you see, about two-thirds of the way down there on page 31, you see this in the Ten Commandments because they begin with worship of God. In Exodus chapter 20, when Moses is given the Ten Commandments, here's how God starts. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So before he gives the commandments, he reminds Moses who he is and who they are in relation to him. I'm the Lord, your God. And I am the one who redeems you. I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. All right, so here we go. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or the waters below. Bottom of page 31. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. And all of this is because if you don't keep those commands, 
those ones about God and your relationship with God, you don't have a prayer of keeping the rest. So Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, and he doesn't give one of the top ten. He doesn't give one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, technically he does. Because he says, you remember what he says, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul, this is the first and the greatest commandment. Now that's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, I went to seminary to learn what I'm going to tell you right now. Deuteronomy chapter 6 falls on the heels of Deuteronomy chapter 5. You got to go to seminary for that, all right? Now, I say that because Deuteronomy 5 is important. Because the, the Ten Commandments show up twice in the Old Testament. The first place is Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus 20. The second one's Deuteronomy 5. So in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have a repeating of the the Ten Commandments, before the people go in, before Joshua, Moses is going to pass off the scene, Joshua is going to lead the people across the Jordan and into the Promised Land, and God is preparing them for this. He gives them the, the law again. But then, hard on the heels of that, God says, here's what's going to sustain you as a nation and as my people. You're going to follow these commands. And, you're going to, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. It's a summary of what he said in chapter 5. And that's why when Jesus is asked, what's the greatest? He can quote Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Love the Lord your God. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So now if I go and I look at the Ten Commandments, I go, those, some of them relate directly to God. Some of them relate directly to humanity, but always involve God. Because if I get the God part right, then I'm not going to murder the people made in this God's image. You shall not murder. So God regulates the behavior of His people by prioritizing the vertical, but showing that failure to observe that is going to have horizontal results as well. Top of page 32 then. So every sin is relational. It's not just breaking abstract law. It's breaking relationship with God. What was intended to be a relationship of submission and worship and love. It's loving something more than I love God. So I walk away from what God has called me to do. And here's the third thing. Is there are words for sin that are helpful. First word is iniquity. Moral impurity. That's my nature. I have moral impurity inside of me. And it's only the evil inside of me that ever hooks me to the evil outside of me. So if I don't have that, then there's nothing to draw me away. That's why then in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Here's how sin happens. And he gives this illustration of how sin happens. Each person is drawn away by their own evil desire. But if you don't have evil desire, then it can't draw you away. So the problem is not primarily external, it's internal. 
So that Jesus then would say, when he walked the earth, he would say, man's issue, it's not what goes into a man. That's the problem. It's what comes out of him. Because the problem originates not outside of us, but rather inside of us. So that's iniquity, moral impurity. I have it inside of me. It's my nature. The second word is transgression, an intentional trespass, stepping over the boundaries. Transgression is parking in the no parking zone, even though I've seen the sign. It's stepping over God's boundaries. So, not, we don't have time for a debate, even if I wanted to start one. But is alcoholism a disease? So just answer to yourself whatever you think the answer is. Is alcoholism a disease? Well, if by disease we mean that alcohol can, you become addicted to alcohol and it can control your body and cause ill effects upon your body like a disease can, it has lots of things in common with disease, for sure. But you, you do want to make a distinction, I think. Because cancer is a disease as well. But you don't pick up a bottle of cancer. Now you could may pay, I guess you could say you could pick up a pack of cancer and pay whatever it is you pay per pack for, you know. Which is bad, but you know, people did get addicted to it. And, but you can get cancer or you can get any other kind of disease, and you had no you had no idea. And the truth is you did nothing to acquire it. So it is the case that you will never be an alcoholic, you will never have the disease of alcoholism if you don't drink alcohol. True? <laughs> so you have to do something. You have to, you have to bust through a boundary. So I have likened it to, yes, addictions are traps. And people in addictions are trapped. And we should have great compassion and do everything we can to try to help with that. But you don't get to the trap until you've first blown through all the signs. But that's what sin does with us. We, we, are, we blow through signs. You know, it says the no parking sign, I saw we shouldn't park. I was on the freeway yesterday, and I passed, I'll just say it that way, someone from our church, Carolyn Poole. And I... Pass, Carolyn. I was going to say blew by, but I just passed. And on my peripheral vision, I'm thinking, that's a sheep in my fold. And she's just seen me blow by. <laughs> now, the truth is, I was going, I know exactly how fast I was going. I was going 77. How do I know this? Because I set my, I set my um, cruise control. I get 10% grace. Did you guys know that? So it's 70, I get 7 miles. If it's 60, I'm at 66. I actually do this. And me and the cops have an understanding about that. You never get pulled over for 10, the 10% grace period. Is this true? Am I right? All right. Am I right? Okay. So I just wrote to Carolyn and I said, I think I just blew by you on the, on the freeway. But the truth is, what were you going? 40? 
okay, okay. <laughs> but you blow past the signs and then you're, and then you're trapped. Okay. And then quickly, lastly, the third word is the word sin. It's an archery term. And sin is doing my best to pull back the bow and shoot the arrow, and it always falls short of the target. Everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. I can't reach God's standard because sin has rendered me unable. So iniquity is moral impurity, transgression is rebellion, and sin is inability. And that inability piece is really important because it does, in a sense, all come back to depravity. And if you don't get the disease right, you won't get the, the prescription right. And we are unable to help ourselves. We have to have help from outside. And that's because of this inability. All right. So if you remember, bring the notes back with you next week. If you don't, we will have additional copies and we'll finish this lesson then, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessings of today, and thank you for the Lord's day and the Lord's people, for the Lord's book, and being able to stand in your presence and sing praise to you and give back to you and learn of you. Lord, I, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who desire to know who you are, who we are, how we are to relate to you, and to do that better today and this week. And I pray that what we have covered today will help us to do that. We ask you to go with us, help us to ponder the things that we've learned and apply them. Grant us safety and bring us back together next week. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.